Welcome back to the Lighthouse Project podcast, a Children of Scientology production and a completely collaborative effort to chat about all the issues affecting the youngest members of Scientology who didn't choose it for themselves. Our goal is to help create awareness around what Scientology feels like specifically to a child, what becomes of them, their sense of self, family bonds, mental health, as only someone who experienced being raised in can, and some familiar topics in a different way, dig into how we can heal and share tools. Today, I'm with my friends, Victoria Locke, Amanda Ray, and Miriam Francis, also raised in Scientology. We're going to do introductions and then continue speaking about the Danny Masterson retrial and Jane Doe 3 testimony plus share some of our own similar experiences. This conversation ends up being pretty expansive, so we will break it into two parts. This is part one. My name is Amanda Ray. My pronouns are she, they. I was born and raised in Scientology. My parents met and were wed at the Celebrity Center in LA, and then we moved to Seattle when I was four, so I was raised in a is referred to often as like a rural org, albeit Seattle not being very rural. So I was raised in a smaller church in Seattle, the only church that was there, and was in the Sea Org when I was 14 for a brief period of time. All of my siblings have been in or are still in the Sea Org. And I was, yeah, in and out of it until I was about 16 and had a long go of recognizing what it was and what it meant to my life and made the deliberate choice to get declared in finally was in 2020. Yeah, it's my part of background. I'm Christy Gordon. I was raised in Scientology from about 2 to 20. The three generations of our family were in. We were isolated and alienated from our non-Scientology family. But 9 and 10, my sister and I signed our first billion-year contracts and then spent the next almost 10 years bouncing in and out of the C organization. Cadet Org, prison program, amnesty program. It was just a really confusing time of living in multiple realities, circling around Scientology. Sometimes we went to public school, sometimes Scientology school, sometimes we didn't go to school at all. And it just felt like a washing machine of a childhood. And I f- feel like I was never sure who I was at any one moment, which role today. I left a really long time ago, and I slipped away quietly. And by that time, our family was all, apart from my mother, out of the sea organization. And in fact, my aunt, uncle, grandmother, and sister had all basically left Scientology. And we had suffered disconnection for seven years by this point. So all of these role models in my life were now gone. My mom was the last holdout and the last uh, person I had to let go of. And so I just slunk off into this dangerous walk world to see if I could survive it. I didn't have an education. I had no real world experience. I still thought through the lens of a Scientology child. But I fumbled along and I definitely knew that I had dodged a bullet getting away from Scientology. I didn't really understand why. I just know it made me feel bad and I didn't want to do it anymore. The only thing that really drew me back was wondering what had happened to other kids like me that I felt were a part of my story, a piece of my puzzle. I was really surprised by how many were still trapped in that hadn't somehow figured a way to get out like I had. 
So it took being out in the world for a while for me to be interested in, in looking back. And then it took engaging with others that were willing to dig in and be honest for me to understand the big picture of abuse to kids and decide to do something about it. And I'm so happy to be here with you, beautiful humans today. I'm Victoria Locke. I was brought into Scientology when I was around 10 by my older brother. He's about 26 years older than I am. And he had been in for a while. He introduced me to my auditor. And from there, I had been pretty, pretty in. I was on staff at a mission and I was on staff at LA Org for a couple of years. I came out of Scientology. I think I was about 20, 21. I had a light bulb moment talking to a friend, describing Scientology to him. And I started laughing because it sounded so ridiculous. <laughs> that was my light bulb. Since then, I've been working in therapy and have been vocal the past couple of years as a survivor trying to help other people. My name is Miriam and I was a Scientologist for 26 years. I was born into the Sea Org in Sydney, Australia, where both of my parents were in the Sea Org and then grew up in it. And I went to the Cadet Org in Los Angeles in 1990 and was in the Cadet Org until I was 13 years old, until I then joined the Sea Org. And then I was in the Sea Org until I was 17. And I left the Sea Org via the RPF at 17 years old. And then I came back to Australia to start my life. But I was still in Scientology. I wanted to be recognized by Scientology. That was my only form of, I guess, worth and worked really hard to try and be a Scientologist in good standing. And I paid my freeloader debt. I made amends. I did my lower conditions. I got back onto services. I did courses. I did the Purif. I was on terrorism and objectives. And and in the meantime, I was very active. So I would go to all the, do all the volunteering. I was a volunteer minister. I would do book sales on the weekends. I also donated to the Ideal Org project for Melbourne Org. So I was very active. But one thing that continued to persist was I was plagued with my experiences of being sexually abused as a child by my father. And in my whole experience in Scientology, they never addressed it. And in fact, in the Sea Org, it was really well known by int executives and other people associated with my mom, my dad, myself. So it was very well known in the Sea Org. And I was never provided any real help and I was never offered any kind of system or service that would help me. And I didn't have the language to describe accurately what happened. And I really struggled with that. And that just continued to persist over so many years until eventually I saw counseling outside of Scientology in 2011. So then that marked the beginning of how I was able to understand more about what happened. And then I reported it to the police and yeah, and just have gone from there. The three of you have done more work on yourselves than most people that I know, certainly me. I'm so proud of you guys for taking back that 
power and being curious and not accepting the narrative that you were given from birth, basically. I mean, that's incredible to me. It's such a credit to not just leaving and going and hiding, but actually digging in and trying to figure out why you feel the way you do and not accepting that you were just a degraded being or whatever, mm. what we were groomed to think about ourselves like I did. I went off and hid under a rock for 30 years, you know. Thank you, yeah. Christy. I, I want to also say, too, that you are very much the fairy godmother <laughs> of a whole lot of us in that you work a lot of magic by just being patient and calm and consistently showing up for those of us who were raised in this. You were one of the first people that I experienced when I started to branch into searching for community because for such a long time I was convinced that I was alone or that I wouldn't find other people that had experienced what I had gone through in such a deep way. And so you have really put in so much work despite what you essentially Despite what you're saying, but really you have done so much work and really are a rock for people that that really need someone, especially those of us who don't have family, don't have a sense of stability. And in fact, you were the person who helped me decide that I was going to go through a system of getting declared and what that looked like. And in no way were you pushy or you never underplayed the experience that it was. You've consistently stood up for those around you. So I just wanted to say, Christy Gordon, <laughs> you are a fairy godmother and you deserve everything in the world. Amanda, compliments like that make me so uncomfortable. Oh, oh no. I'm going to accept them anyways because I have tried to show up. That's the, what I will say. I have tried to show up. I want to love bomb on Christy too because when I did the aftermath episode, that was a very... Probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It was very difficult. And that day was kind of a blur. And I remember being on stage talking to Mike and Leah, and that was hard, but it was, I was very detached from it. But the second that we stopped rolling and the mics came off of me, I remember I melted. And it was just all of these years of like just bottled anger and sadness and betrayal. It just could not stop crying and it was so it just it was a turning moment in my life and the person that was there next to me is Christy and took me outside and we sat on the steps and I was crying next to you and it was just a very a 180 moment I don't know how else to explain it it was just very healing to be with somebody caring and listening and accepting not judgmental and so just thank you for all that Oh, that was a really brave day. It was a brave day. Victoria, I was so proud to know yeah. you on that every day. But that was a big day. It's one thing to wake up and get your information together in words to describe mm -hmm. what happened to you and then get the courage up to say it out loud. But to say it with an audience and cameras from every yeah. direction and cuts and retakes, you did amazingly. And I'm just proud to Thank be you. there. And same with you, Amanda. You came out so beautifully it was just talk about really choosing your own narrative picking the exact time I remember you communicated to every single family member exactly why you were doing what you were doing and it was just eloquent and painful but it was beautiful it was a beautiful moment for me although I knew how hard it was for you and how Thanks. much thought you'd put into it thank you being able to have community with second generation Scientologists in this way 
knowing people again that were raised in this experience, it was something I knew that I was facing down. It was an inevitability that I knew. And it was simply because I wasn't going to allow myself to be restricted mm -hmm. any further. You know, they make it very comfy and easy to sit quietly and not say anything and not get declared. You are taught when you are growing up that suppressive people are awful and that SPs are going to gather around and drag <laughs> you down. And when I expressed to this sort of group of people that were essentially strangers to me that had also been raised in that I was facing this down and what it looks like, I fully expected everyone to say, fuck them, who cares? And, and instead I was met with, make sure that you are ready because no matter how much preparation you put in, no matter how thoughtful you are, it's still a huge moment in your life. And the emotions that come with that are something you will not understand until it happens. And so the advice I was met with was essentially love your family as long as you can. And so it really shook me. That was the feedback that I received. And, I, and for that purpose, because I was in such a truly privileged situation to be able to use my voice clearly and deliberately to tell my family, this is why I'm against this thing. And I feel that you're being manipulated. And here are some things that I have experienced. And these rules will not apply to me should I get declared. But I understand that you will need to follow them for your own purposes. But I think Scientology is evil. And here's why. And if you ever want to talk about it, I am always here. And really deliberately made that message. And the reason that I did so was not necessarily to keep things decent with my family, but was because of what everyone had met me with. It was this sense of that they had really wished it had been something they could have controlled. So I very deliberately did that in order to really try to honor the people that don't ever get to control that narrative, the people that will never be able to speak up because they are afraid of losing their families. And and I know plenty of them. So, you know, it's it's life changing. The work that you do is life changing, Christy. And the people that I'm doing this with are just constantly inspiring to me. So thank you for inviting me to come aboard. You don't know how much it means to me, all of you. It is debilitating to think that you're in this mm -hmm. by yourself. It's also debilitating to be under the radar because you can't speak your truth. You can't be who you are. And so I think those two things are so powerful to move on from, to reconnect with community and to also finally be able to be honest, be authentic. Yeah, Christy, I just wanted to say thank you for what you've done for so many years. I feel like you've been the sinew that kind of brings us together and keeps us together and keeps us connected. I've found that so nice. I feel like every once in a while you've checked in and I think made sure that we had connections when there's been resources along the way and that kind of thing. And I thought that was really cool. Thank you for um, that. Also, you sent me a beautiful, scary painting. I did. <laughs> She's an artist and she painted this child with an octopus reaching around the face which was obviously scientology i would say i'm a hobby artist but just do it for fun and it's a method of communicating and that's always great to put something together that's visual that can show what it was like how that felt when you want to scream and you feel like you're being muffled 
someone's holding your mouth shut. You don't have anything else to grab onto. You're completely controlled. So that painting I sent to Christy really represents how I felt through that whole process in Scientology. Amanda, it's so nice to have you join us in this episode and for future episodes as well. So just to get you caught up a bit and also for any listeners, in our last episode, we discussed the opening statements in the trial of Danny Masterson, who is defending charges of three counts of forcible rape. We talked about something that was mentioned in Jane Doe 3's testimony, which was this reframing of rape in reference to 2D. Scientology uses their own terminology to nullify crimes of a sexual nature and define it as something else entirely. Christy mentioned these hiding words. And Victoria courageously shared her experience with us about when she was a child in Scientology and was made to believe that the molestation and rape that she experienced as a child was out to D. In her testimony, Jane Doe 3 described that she went to see the ethics officer, Miranda Scoggins, at the Celebrity Center to report that Danny Masterson had raped her. She said of the ethics officer, Miranda Scoggins, she told me you cannot rape someone you're in a relationship with. She used the term 2D for relationship. Later, she says that she was told not to use the word rape. So to explain what this term means, 2D, in Scientology, there is the spectrum across which a person exists these various urges to survive, how well they are doing on a particular dynamic would indicate how well they are surviving in relation to that area of their life. It's broken down into eight dynamics. And these are, the first dynamic is self, the second dynamic is family, the raising of children and sex. The emphasis on this is the purpose of sex for creativity to compel future survival. The third dynamic is groups. The fourth dynamic is mankind. The fifth dynamic is life forms. The sixth dynamic is the physical universe, matter, energy, space, and time. The seventh dynamic encompasses anything spiritual. The eighth dynamic is commonly called God, the supreme being or creator, but it is defined as infinity. So as a person progresses in Scientology, it is believed that they will expand on these dynamics. Essentially, they will move across from being mostly self-focused, occupied with themselves as an individual, and then they will move towards improving their family or sexual relationship on the second dynamic. Then they will expand to be more involved in the group that they are a part of. They will become more active in that group or groups, more willing to participate. Then it's the fourth dynamic where they will broaden their actions and intentions to encompass mankind and so on. So for example, if someone said Joe is existing only on the first dynamic, this means that all he cares about is himself. Or if someone said that you were 2D orientated, that's the Scientology equivalent of saying that you're hyper-focused on sex or that you're promiscuous. Now, what is out 2D? If something is out, it means that it is wrong. It's misaligned. Something is not right. And if you're talking about a dynamic, you're talking about someone's urge to survive. So if you're going to go out 2D, that would mean that you're doing things which are destructive to this dynamic of family and sex. This means that you have done something wrong it was your fault. You are to blame. Beautifully explained, Miriam. Yeah. Yeah. And Christy mentioned these hiding words, how reterming and rephrasing minimizes the crime and is damaging to the victim and how important using the correct language for these things are for us. There's so much more of this type of language and one that's mentioned 
or this controlling of the narrative, this changing of words and dictating things that you can say, you can't say, you can't say rape, you can say this. It's high control. One of the things that Jane Doe 3 mentioned is that she was instructed to keep all HENR, human emotions and reactions, out of her report. And I feel like this is something that we are very familiar with growing up in Scientology. Miriam, I definitely have so much experience with that, with no HENR. Specifically, what came to mind, I shared a little bit about my experience with our last conversation on the last episode. But to add a little bit more onto that, so I experienced some sexual assault from a much older cousin. And what was interesting is that cousin was then brought into Scientology to receive auditing to, I don't know, fix whatever was going on with him. He was to receive some counseling, some auditing. I was in a few different chaplain cycles. So chaplain cycle is with my auditor, who was a chaplain for the church, quote unquote, and with my cousin. And my brother was also present. And during these chaplain cycles, I remember being upset as I'm 12, 13. I'm having a natural human reaction to abuse. And I remember vividly on multiple occasions being told not to have HENR in my communication, meaning do not have human emotion in reaction. I could not have anger towards my cousin. I couldn't have sadness or betrayal. All of these natural emotions I was feeling, I had to be very analytical and robotic in my reaction to the abuse that I was enduring. And so reading Jane Doe 3's testimony was very, it just hit very close to home because as I was reading her words, I was thinking, oh, I remember that exactly. That's exactly what my experience was on multiple occasions talking about this. Victoria, can I ask you which Scientology, or I don't know if you want to share that or not, but if I can ask you which Scientology organization that was. This was with a field auditor. So if anyone who wants Mm -hmm. to explain what field auditors are. Sure, yeah. I had a a field auditor. You know, uh, I think a lot of folks, Mm -hmm. especially second-gen folks, were raised in L.A. or in Clearwater or around those areas where there are large bases. And one of the aspects of being a rural org kid was that we had every once in a while some Sea Org members to come up and do a big fundraising campaign or run a folders project or something like that. But for the most part, our auditors were mostly field auditors. And you can feel free to correct my definition too if I'm off on this, but essentially they are trained auditors that can go work out in the fields, are not specifically set staff members at an org or at a church, but are staff members that can can go out and deliver auditing in homes. That's how I got my first sec check, security check, when I was tw- 11 or 12, was through a field auditor for about a year. And mm-hmm. so she, we actually audited in her home, and she would come pick me up from my house, and then we would go to her home, and then she would- I had the same up. experience, either in, in her office or at home or at my house, receive, receiving security checks mm-hmm. at a very young age. Yeah. It's funny to be in a sec check. I remember being, I think I was- I think I was almost 12 
and I had kissed a boy and everyone freaked out and immediately ordered that I get a sex check. And I was in it for over a year and because they just kept saying that I was so irresponsible and evil that I just like continually needed to basically be in a year-long confessional over whatever I was doing at 11 or 12. And part of that sec check experience was even just, I think I, I had just gotten my first period a couple of years prior or something like that. And part of, I remember being in, in a sec check at that age and asking my auditor, like getting caught up on these questions about, so what really is a period and what really did, because I couldn't really talk to my parents about this kind of thing. It was, they just wasn't right. And a field auditor was the first person to like explain to me what happened when I was menstruating and didn't really have a lot to confess, quote unquote, in these sessions. But the sex check is all about getting you to confess confess essentially to anything and everything that you consider an overt or withhold and it was getting to the point where I was like taking cookies from the cookie jar kind of thing because they were just waiting for me essentially to say that it was my fault that I had 2D flown or I'd been 2D flowing this boy who was much older than me I think he was 17 at the time and um so they were just trying to get me to to basically offer Amanda how to them. I'm sorry how disturbing and I don't even have the words that this is a shared experience with a lot of us, if not all of us with like second gen kids, that our first exposure mm -hmm. to anything sexually related or menstruation, I mean, just these basic conversations. Oh my gosh. This is, it's through auditing and it's through yes. these very intrusive yeah really inappropriate conversations with adult, much older auditors that are auditing children. And for anyone that's mm -hmm. not familiar, you're in an auditing room, in a locked room with an adult auditor, and you are not allowed to leave that auditing session or counseling session until basically the auditor feels that you're done. So you're stuck there and you're answering really intrusive disturbing questions over Sometimes and over, for and hours. over and over again too so even if you admit to something that you maybe didn't right. immediately feel connected to by the time you leave that session you are convinced that something happened a certain way and that it was your fault for pulling it into yeah and i wish i could say too victoria that like this experience of being 11 and kissing a 17 year old boy and it being a whole thing was my first experience with right. sexual interactions or with being come on to by other kids that I was raised with. And it, unfortunately, I, my years of sexual abuse started when I was well, not quite three years old. And in every circumstance, the church had some opportunity or corner to take further action against adult or much, much older people and didn't. So and that no H&R kind of stuff, especially when you're raised in a rural org, I think there's a difference. It's mm -hmm. in your home in a way that you can't leave at the centers that you go to. I remember being a teenager at Flag and it, it almost felt like when you live around Flag or you live close to a base, you can leave. It's almost like leaving work. You can leave it where it is. But when you are in a rural org, you are encouraged to surround yourself and your home with these texts and references and things. So I think especially in having such a small community, you are expected 
each individual is expected to minister this belief system in a way that that feels like it's all on you because there there isn't a pretty building that we can send people to. We had smaller buildings that were really breaking down and the same staff members. It was run by the same person for many years. So it's it's interesting to to think about that. that no Ichi and R was something that we mm-hmm. often said in our households. If I got upset about something, it was just like, okay, enough with the Ichi and R. Just normal. Like you just need to knock Normal it off. conversations. Um, yeah. yeah, just normal. Yeah. Enough with the human emotion and reaction. <laughs> exactly. We've got the Seerg experience and we've got the celebrity experience. We've got the rural org experience. They all have their own horror show going on in their own way. That's a good point, Christy. I wanted to thank you guys again for having me. And um, I just really appreciate this, the platform and anyone who's willing to listen to our experiences and wants to learn more and be educated. My, my partner is finishing his like full, first mm-hmm. full read through of Growing Clear. He's seen the documentary and he's read the book, you know, on a couple different occasions, but he is listening to an audiobook of it right now. And just the fact that every once in a while he'll turn to me and be like, I... I'm spending a couple of hours a day thinking about yeah. this thing. I can't even imagine what it would be like to just have that as your background. So I just appreciate that people are willing to listen to our stories. And I am excited to hear from other people about their stories, too. So thank you again for having me. Thank you I'm for excited. sharing. Wow. Well, it was so great to have Amanda join us there. And she did have to run, but we're certainly going to hear some more about her story over the future episodes. And it's just so lovely to have the four of us together in this setting to just really drill down into some of these things. And I so appreciate every little piece of each person's story and how that contributes to a general understanding or a broader understanding of some of these issues. And in regards to no HN or no human emotions and reaction, growing up in the Sea Org, in the Cadet Org, from such a young age, I started at the CEO in Los Angeles when I was six years old. And it was my experience through growing up between six years old to 13 years old to be told if I was crying because I missed my mom. I really missed her. And I felt like there was something wrong with me because sometimes I couldn't control where I would just cry and cry. So most of the time, I became pretty resilient pretty quickly, pretty early on. I would say within the first few months, I had gotten the hang of things there at the CEO. And then, but from time to time, like I remember at the ATA, just having moments where I would just cry and cry. I miss my mom so much and I didn't understand. It's a lot that you can't understand at that young age. And anyways, I felt that there was maybe something wrong with me that I couldn't control this lot of emotion. So I would be very well controlled for a period of time, but then suddenly I would have a flooding of emotion. And I, that always frustrated me. I had that, or the frustration was not understanding that. And I had that throughout the entirety of my childhood through being in the Sea Org and even through my adult life. It's only something I've understood more about in the last few years. And so it just shows you this controlling of the emotions uh, it just has such an impact on a child and it's just really horrific and it really disconnects a person from their experiences. Our emotions are a way of, that we can understand what our experience was. And if you detach that and you disconnect that, it really does a lot of damage to a person. Totally. You know, kids have separation anxiety from their parents. And so people might think, oh, 
you were at the CEO, that's a daycare. Except that's where you were always. Like you didn't see your parents. If it was an hour or two, you were lucky. And then when you're sent to a ranch, it's what once a year like it's not the same thing like it hurt my heart when mm-hmm. you said that you got the hang of it i just want to cry when i think about the idea of a child having to acclimate mm-hmm. to having no parent because the greatest good is something else and they know in their bones they're not the greatest good and the only way to become part of the greatest good is to become a soldier yourself it's just heartbreaking Christy, that is so true. And specifically in my case, I think I was able to be more resilient because I already had separation from my mother for a couple of years where she had been recruited to Los Angeles from Australia and she left behind myself and my two siblings with her father. So my brothers and I were told we're going to be reunited with our mother and we were really excited. So we go on the plane, we go to LA, we we meet her there at the airport and There's more to the story because I had a lot of anxiety building up to this because I was Mm. like, I'm not going to recognize her face. And I was really worried about that. I knew a child should recognize their own mother and I couldn't picture what she looked like. So anyways, we meet her at the airport and I was like, yes, everything is going to be okay. Bear in mind, I was subjected to sexual abuse by my father in the time that she was working for Scientology in Los Angeles. And... I was like, okay, we're together again. We're reunited. This, this is it. And a couple of days later, she drops us off at the CEO, mm-hmm. but she doesn't even say goodbye. She goes into an office and then we just never see her. Mm-hmm. And what happens when I found out later, so there was where you said you might see them a couple hours. My mom was gone because at that time mm-hmm. she had moved to gold. And I only sort of learned recently when I was watching something that Mark Headley was talking about where it was at that same time period and it went on for a few months and it was the exact same time period that at the int base, they had this full lockdown because they were all in lower conditions. Mm. It was a base-wide lower conditions, which meant that no one could leave the base. There was no excuse that would be good enough. No one was allowed to leave. And he described that it went on for a few months and it didn't, I think he said that it was after Thanksgiving or around that time. So I arrived there in September 1990, and so you can see that there was then a few months of where she was just gone. And it was during that time that I had to, was when I really adapted, I think, because there was just over a hundred kids. It was just a sea of chaos, and it was just, you just had to survive. So that was that experience. And then, of course, my mom, throughout my childhood, she's still at gold. Well, I'm still at PAC. So I would see her every once in a while. She would come down to LA and there'd be months in between this. And we would spend a few hours together and I'd be like, oh, I have my mom and all those absences. I just still loved her so much. And, but then she would be gone again and I would just have to start this whole thing over. And so it was often when she would leave, I'd have that time with her and then she'd be gone. That's when I would have that flooding of emotion. And then over time again, I would then build that resiliency back up, put it to the back of my mind. Then we'd be reconnected again. So this happened many times throughout my whole childhood. It's awful. Yeah. Miriam, can I ask you, because I have my own personal experience with this, but at what point do you feel like you finally steeled yourself permanently 
to not see her again and it stopped affecting you emotionally. Because I think what you're describing is you'd acclimate and adapt and then you'd see her again and you'd get reattached to her and then you'd have to adapt again. And that kind of repeated abandonment or is awful. But when do you feel like, or did you, when do you feel like you finally said, oh, okay, I don't have to feel this anymore? It was during the time periods that I was at the ranch and I realized I don't need my mother. How old were you? I reckon this would have been around 12 years old. I think that what the specific experience was, the ranch was a great place to be in terms of being out in the countryside, which I really enjoyed being in nature and that sort of thing. And there was certainly a lot of horrible things that went on at the ranch, but there were also some great improvements upon what our experience was in L.A. And that's what I had as comparison. For me, the experience in L.A. was pretty horrible. So it was nice to have some space to roam around. I mean, in L.A., we were sort of just in this little tarped up concrete, you know, space. And it was just, yeah, really horrible. You were growing up in the shadow of Big Blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what really changed things for me was when I was 12 years old or thereabouts, we had Sierra Day. And I think this was between 12 and 13 years old, I want to say. Maybe I, it was just before I turned 13 because my birthday is somewhere near around Sea Org Day. So all the cadets were issued brand new uniform and we were taken down to L.A. to do this big whole ceremony thing. And it was this big deal. And we, I believe at the time we had leading up to this, we had signed Sea <laughs> Org contracts. And it was like this whole kind of thing, like you're going to be featured Sea Org members. Which, by the way, we were always told that, but this was a particular kind of amping up of that sort of transition. And I remember feeling like how momentous that was. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do something great too. I'm going to tell my mother that my dad had done these things to me. And I really worked myself up to that. And I had on my brand new uniform and my shiny new belt and my brand new boots, which I'd never been given. They never gave us shoes ever. So it was this complete different presentation of what the cadet experience was. But yeah, so we, so I just, it felt important is what I'm trying to say. The occasions felt really important to me. And I knew that we were going to LA and I was hoping to see her. And I didn't know when I was next going to see her, but I was like, I'm doing this and I'm ready to take that next step. I'm ready to tell my brother if at some point in time I do see her in the future. Now we do the ceremony and actually, so this is the Sea Org ceremony, cadet ceremony. And after that, there's like photos. And then it's after that, it's once the Mm. whole thing's finished, somehow she just pops out of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's mom. And see, I still had that real attachment to her and really excited to see her. And I thought, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment I should tell her, which I wasn't quite entirely prepared for because I didn't know when I would see her again. I was like, I need to do it now really feeling like this is really important so I start to try and tell her and I'm like I need to tell you something and I kind of pull her to the side and you know I can see my dad out of the corner of my eyes he's standing there with my brothers and she's like what is it Miriam tell me what is it and I was like oh I'm well I'm trying to find the words for it and she goes Mm. she's like well just tell me now like I've got to go and I was like wait you, you have to leave like you just got here she literally just shown up just minutes before that and she goes, oh, I got to get on the mail run back to gold. And the mail run was the van that would routinely go between gold and LA. And that's how people would 
be able to be transported back and forth. And that's how she always came and left was via this mail run that delivered packages and communications back and forth to the int base. Anyways, so she's like, I've got to go. I've got to go. And she was like, come on, sweetie. And I was like, oh, no. Oh. And I was like, that's nothing. So anyways, then she left. She was gone. So when I get back to the ranch and it's sometime after that, my dad comes and he confesses to me so he was a, as a part of a handling for his confessional. And anyways, I won't go into that detail now. We can cover that a different time. And I've covered it before separate to this. But essentially, it was straight after that that I got a letter from her. So my mother would always send me letters mm. like, I am doing something amazing. We've got this event coming up and Scientology is so successful. It never gave any personal details about her or about good you know, roads, fair weather, real conversation. It was always just about the success of Scientology. Yeah, it will. And also it was everything was top secret as well. So she would say, you know, oh, I'm working on this event or this release and that kind of thing. And then, yeah. But anyways, this time it was different because she sent me this thing called Pab 6, which was very strange. She had been told about the sexual abuse and that was her response. Now, obviously, I didn't tell her, but I think that was really the beginning of it where it was like just that real disconnect, you know, and yeah, it just sort of really was through that ranch time period where I just didn't feel that attachment as strongly. And I think it's because I was really realizing that she wasn't a parent that right. was involved or that could help me with anything so I think and I think maybe that I wasn't conscious of it at the time but I think I worked out mm -hmm. oh I need to figure out these things out on my own that she's not a person that I can go to talk about these things that's so interesting Miriam and you said in the beginning yeah I realized I didn't need my mother anymore and I think that yeah. that that was your realization is actually she wasn't a resource for you and she hadn't been for some time. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it just breaks my heart. I have a similar experience. I'm not going to go into it, but same thing around the same age, realizing, having this realization, you already know that you're not the greatest good. You already know that you're not at all the priority, but realizing that yeah, they're never going to circle back to you. <laughs> they're just not going to. And so you have to just find your own way. Realizing you have to find your own way. That's quite a, yeah, it's a light bulb moment as a child. Yes. Or two things, because I also relate to that. But not, my mother was not a Scientologist, but I can also relate to um, just having parents that are not parents and don't come back for you and having that very deep-seated abandonment issues that Scientology really preys on and really attaches itself to. But what I was going to say before was in regards to H-E-N-R and growing up as a child in Scientology and learning to compartmentalize your emotions and not to feel your emotions at all, which is anyone else knows is completely unhealthy and not what a healthy child should be doing. But on the topic of mental health and mental illness, after I got out of Scientology, I went into therapy and I finally found a trauma specialist and was diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder or DID. 
And I really firmly believe that Scientology exacerbated that illness for me and could have been a catalyst for a lot of my mental illness and episodes that I was not aware of at the time. But DID is a dissociative disorder. And it's interesting looking back now as an adult, and I have the capacity to analyze what was going on with me. Scientology really exacerbated that because I wasn't allowed to feel emotions. And so I was completely detached from myself and dissociated from my body, from my feelings, pretty much at all times. And even when I wanted to feel healthy feelings, I was told that was wrong. Um, so that, that was just my thought process on that. Is I, I had even told my auditor multiple times, I feel X, Y, Z. I feel like I'm out of my body or like I'm living in a movie, which is one of the key symptoms of trauma and also dissociative disorders. And I, would just, I was told that I was out valence or something was going on. Victoria, dude, that's when they would say to you in session that you'd gone exterior, like it was some wonderful thing. Exactly. I was validated for Mm -hmm. being outside of my body. I was validated saying, oh, that's a good thing. That's the end phenomenon of the auditing cycle. Yes, exactly right. And how could you not dissociate? How could you not be forced to dissociate Mm -hmm. when you're being told you can't use your words, you can't feel your feelings? And that didn't happen to you. And also, too, mm-hmm. let's look back in your previous life for when you did that to someone else. To get out of this. Yeah. So now please make <laughs> yeah. something up from right. 27 trillion years ago so that you make the auditor accept that you've right. done the thing. I am like having other light bulbs go off of no wonder I had such a warped sense of identity because it wasn't even my identity. I was making up stories from 13 billion years ago just to get out of this two-hour session that I've been stuck in. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. That'll definitely do that to a person, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's interesting, Victoria, what you were saying there about they wanted to know what you did, so you had to go back. And one of the things that Jane Doe 3 touches on, she said that Miranda Scoggins told her that she had done something to pull it in. Now, the background of that, where that comes from, is from the overt motivator sequence that Alwyn Hubbard created. We're going to pause here for this episode. So to be continued, we'll carry on this conversation right where we left off. I know personally how important these conversations are to have privately, but I think they're powerful to have publicly. So we look forward to having them, you joining us, and us including other voices as we can. I just wanted to provide everyone, just once again, that website for RAIN is www.rainn.org, and the phone number is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. We want to thank everyone for joining us, for listening, for supporting. Please do check in with yourself. A lot of the things we discussed are difficult, and we just appreciate navigating through this tough stuff together. See you next time.